Hello, and welcome to the Other Tradition Podcast, with your hosts, Dr. Richard Thomas and Lex Musta. This is where we revisit our history from the perspective of the Other Tradition, where extensive interracial cooperation has always been the driver of signal improvements in our race relations. We hope this encourages our listeners to reach out multiracially in their own efforts to continue America's storied other tradition. Enjoy. On May 25th, over eight torturous minutes and 46 seconds, George Floyd was murdered by a police officer, screaming to us centuries of injustice through the pupil of Americans of African descent an injustice of authority piled beyond the breaking point with the economic injustice exposed by the corona pandemic, leaving one in every 2,000 Americans of African descent as its victim, a death rate triple that of Americans of European descent. At this moment, Baha'u'llah's revelation regarding justice cries out with hope for America. O people of justice, be as brilliant as the light and as splendid as the fire that blazed in the burning bush. The brightness of the fire of your love will no doubt fuse and unify the contending peoples and kindreds of the earth. The other tradition provides a powerful example of the light of justice in reaction to another police murder of an American of African descent 78 years ago. In the quiet rolling hills of scenic Greenwood Cemetery in Pittsburgh, we find the grave of Mr. Thomas E. Brodus. In Section 5, Range 14, Lot 9, Grave Number 1. He was survived by a wife and their two sets of twins. His great-grandson, Josh Brodus, is studying marketing at California University of Pennsylvania. A life of resiliency from an unvideotaped era. 79 years ago, Mr. Brodus was drafted into the 1,322nd Service Command Unit and stationed in rural Maryland's Fort Meade for training. On a particularly cold February 1st, he went out to Baltimore for some well-deserved rest and relaxation from serving his country in the Second Great European Tribal War. Private Brodus was in Baltimore's historic Uptown community, one of the most affluent African-descent American neighborhoods at the time. He made his way to the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and Pitcher Street, where Glenn Shakenbake Doty's famous recreation center would be founded 40 years later. Pennsylvania Avenue, where Cab Calloway grew up, was the premier strip for African descent Baltimoreans, inspiring comparisons to Lenox Avenue in Harlem. As licensed cab drivers would not pick up or drop off passengers from the predominantly African descent neighborhood, a nickel fare, or a jitney fare, fleet serviced the community, unlicensed and running just like buses back and forth across town. A police officer prevented Private Brodus entry the unlicensed vehicle, an officer who had killed Mr. Charles Parker just two years prior. As Private Brodus attempted to flee, the policeman shot Private Brodus in the back and walked over to the injured Private Brodus, hiding behind a parked car, and shot him in the back a second time. And to add further horror, he then began to kick Private Brodus. In the previous three years, nine other Americans of African descent had been killed by Baltimore police officers including two teenagers, Lawrence Harvey and Eugene Duvall, in their own schoolyard. After the police officer was acquitted by the grand jury, Lily Carroll Jackson, president of the Baltimore City branch of the NAACP, helped organize 150 Baltimore organizations into a citizens committee 
for justice, to raise $800 and form a 2,000-person caravan of buses and cars to travel the 25 miles to Annapolis to meet with Governor Herbert O'Connor and demand change on April 24, 1942. For more African descent police officers on the force, better vocational training for youth, increased funding for health care, a concerted effort by public and private sector employers to hire African descent residents, and vast improvements in housing in the city's densely populated and segregated areas. On February 23, 2017, I was invited by Radiance Tally and the University of Maryland Baha'i Club to present this other tradition of interracial action for advancing justice in America. It was a presentation made in support of African Descent American History Month on campus, where I related the details of how Lily Carol Jackson came to be in the position to lead such an interracial improvement to the policing of Baltimore, based on a long tradition of interracial justice in that city. As a student in Maryland, you are part of one of the greatest civil rights traditions in America. What, of course, is ironic about that is it's probably the least known civil rights tradition in America. Who's been to the Greensboro Civil Rights Museum? That's the Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro where they have a lunch counter. It was integrated in 1961. You might have heard of that one. It's a pretty famous one. Who's been to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture? Do you remember the lunch counter they have there? It's also the Greensboro one. Okay. 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 So, in Greensboro, people dump shakes on their heads, and you know it's made for good camera. Horrible experience, obviously, for the people doing the sit-in. But here in Maryland, six years earlier, 1955, on January 20th, we had a successful sit-in. Dr. Helen Hicks was one of the seven students there. All Maryland students. So Maryland students were the first ones in the country to get involved in the sit-in movement. So this is something that we should really know. We should be making museums about. And what's so interesting about that sit-in was the story behind it. How is it that Helen, 20-year-old, decided to walk into Reed's Drugstore and say, I'm going to block this seat so you can't have any paying customer here until you serve me, right? And then how did her sitting there desegregate 37 Reed's drugstores across town? How does this happen? So I'm going to go into a little bit tonight talking about this tradition and where it came from and then how you all fit into this. So a couple years earlier, the Congress of Racial Equality, who's heard of that organization? Something like that is something we should all know about in America. Because in this time, we'd love to have some racial equality. So there was a group that came out of Chicago in 1942. And they really embraced the Gandhian belief of nonviolence. And it arrived here to Maryland in 52. Who established it in Maryland? It kind of helps you lead towards the story of Helen in that seat. And it was a guy who literally survived the Holocaust in World War II from Vienna. He escaped just barely. He applied for a U.S. visa. U.S. was very slow at giving out visas to Jews in World War II. And he goes, I can't wait. So he left Vienna, went to Belgium. And then the day before the Germans invaded Belgium, U.S. came through with a visa and he jumped on a boat 
with his family and came to Baltimore. And so he was one of the people who started the Congress of Racial Equality in Baltimore. Another individual is the first African-American law practice in Maryland, Mr. Watts. He was another founder of this Congress of Racial Equality. Let me just explain a little bit how they work. So Wilfred, imagine I am the head of Kmart. This was when Kmart, does anyone remember the old name for Kmart? It was only changed in 79. Kragers, Kragers. And so imagine I'm in the store. You are Congress of Racial Equality. How would you tell me to integrate my lunch counter? What we called at that time a five and dime lunch counter because everything was five cents or 10 cents. What do you think you would have done if you were representing Congress of Racial Equality? So they said, stop. Why not just ask? Right? Like in terms of your empowerment, if you're, I'm trying to relate this to yourself today, if you encounter racial injustice, why not ask? Stop. Well, this manager of a huge chain, I mean, Kmart, huge national chain, what can a manager do? Manager has no authority. Call headquarters in New York. New York goes, yeah, you serve them. I will serve you. So Kmart, with one little letter from Congress Racial Equality, integrated their lunch counters. But again, we still don't hear about it. Who hears about the 53 integration of Kmart? Nobody. You hear about 61 Greensboro. But wait a second, Congress of Racial Equality just integrated Kmart. So then they go to, who do they go next? Woolsworth, downtown, another big department store downtown. Hey, Woolsworth, Kmart just integrated. What are you guys going to do? I don't know, let me check headquarters. They integrated without a seat being sat in, without anything. So then they go to McCrory's and Grant's, the next two biggest. So you see Corey's just going along. Let's go with the biggest one, then the second biggest one. The next two biggest, they're more local Baltimore, you know, more steeped in this tradition. They're not going to go so easy. So they required a sit-in. That was before students. So adults were doing sit-ins before the students. But eventually, Mr. Watts is the head of the NACP. That lawyer was the head of the NACP on the Morgan State campus. So he goes, I want my students involved. The students are pretty upset about the shopping center right beside Morgan State campus. That's not integrating. So they went to them with the same core way. They go, hey, you know, everyone else is integrating. Are you going to integrate? And Reed's drugstore said no. So they started an eight-month sit-in. Morgan State students would go there. And that was in 54. Eight months in. This has been going on. So you can see core is leading this. Students are getting involved. The head of their student association, you have a sponsor perhaps for the Baha'i Club, kind of inspired you, you know, said, we're doing this, why don't you join in? So Helen was cold on January 20th. Who's ever taken the bus in the winter? Anybody here? What do you hate most about a bus in the winter? What about even more than that when the bus goes by because it's full? That's even more painful because you waited, you knew it's coming, but it's full. Two buses passed Helen that day. And that Reed Drugstore is sitting right there. She's got her six friends here. We're going to warm up. And we're going to get something to drink. So that's what kind of, you can imagine, she had in her mind what the Morgan State students were already doing. She hadn't yet gotten involved. But then she got into it. So you kind of see how, how that first step happened for her. You know, how, the, how does actual heroic moments in our, in our country actually happen? What's the actual mindset? And then, of course, what's so nice about the student movement that's not, often not talked about is how the multi-generations work together. So the student did the sitting, but then Dean George Grant of Morgan State called the Nathan family and goes, here's the exact conversation we have. 
I hear that you're still segregated. And Reeves goes, yes, we're still segregated. Well, here at Morgan State, we teach our students that they must practice democracy and help others to understand it. I don't think you want us to tell them what you're doing is wrong, do you? Well, yes, but uh, we're losing business when they're sitting here in our seat. Well, there's several things you could do. Oh, what's that? Well, why don't you put up a sign by the door saying no dogs, no cats, and no African Americans? Well, we couldn't do that. Oh. Well, then why don't you put an ad in the Afro-American, which is the local Baltimore paper, saying that Reeds wants colored people to shop here and they can't eat here. You have another alternative. You can say to all your customers, everyone could be served. So this is the actual very tongue-in-cheek conversation he's baiting this manager with. And then the guy goes, well, we're in sympathy with this thing. And so the next day, he ran a big article in the paper, said everyone could be served, and all 37 counters got integrated. So Reeds went down. And so some people are trying to fight, like Helen, is trying to fight to preserve that drugstore so we could eventually make a museum there. But the government of Baltimore has just sold it to a business to just you know, open up another store and tear it all down. These are the kind of fights for our history that I hope you can learn about today. But as nice as that story sounds, that's how we typically learn the Greensboro sit-in. But I want to teach you that this is not just a little moment of Helen in 1954, isolated from history, just happening. Like all of a sudden we woke up in the 50s and go, I don't want to be segregated anymore. So what did Helen do when she was 13 years old with her parents? And this again goes to how you raise up children like my daughter, to, to see the world differently. Does anyone know the famous thing that happened in Baltimore from 1946 to 1952? See, this history is totally unknown to us because it's the other tradition. Everyone knows the tradition of violence. Everyone wants to talk about it. But very few people want to talk about the actual tradition we have of interracial cooperation to fix our problems. And so here we go to the Ford's Theater. It is the same one as the one, the same family owned it that opened the one in D.C., you know, where Lincoln got shot and everything. The same family opened two theaters. This one got opened in 1882. For 81 years, it was segregated. It was the premier place, the premier place, because it's hard to remember before movies, theater was even bigger. What did this 13-year-old see? And she actually called her the other day. She's still alive, and she actually wants to come and speak to you. But Helen said it was very scary being there. So you're a 13-year-old girl, and you're scared, but your parents succeeded. What kind of organization would it require for the NAACP to man that picket line for every single show at the Ford's Theater for five years? They didn't miss one show. Just picture yourself. How many days you had to give up, how many fun times you had to give up to stand there and force every single customer to walk past your picket saying, I'm human, I have a right not to sit in your balcony. And the leader of that, Ada Jenkins, she organized, she was the organizer of the Baltimore Interracial Fellowship. She was the first African-American supervisor of music in Baltimore. She was a professor of music at Morgan State. So you're already seeing that before we had that Morgan State, we had this thing happening at Morgan State. You see, there's a tradition that we're building on. It didn't just start out of nowhere. And she, of course, she was a, a charter member of the Congress of Racial Equality, as we'd expect. And she got amazing people to participate in five years of doing that. Any Sherlock Holmes fans here? Movie? No? Basil Rathbone, I don't think any of you would know it, but Basil Rathbone was one of the big Sherlock Holmes people. If you go back and look at those black and white Sherlock Holmes, 
you'll see Basil Rathbone up on the big screen. He refused to come to Ford's Theatre. The number one leading man of Hollywood in 1946? Any guesses? Mr. Edward Robinson. He also boycotted the theatre. So you're having an effect. You're putting out five years, you're boycotting these individuals. And Dr. Lily Jackson also got activated to join in this protest. And, you know, what's amazing is that the protest worked. And it actually succeeded in getting the Merry Widow was the first desegregated play to happen there. But this actually worked. And one of the people who got activated during that time that could sustain an organization to man every single night was Dr. Lily Ann Jackson. She is an amazing woman. Let's think about a lady who could focus on, in 1940s, on a protest every day of the week, right? You gotta have a supportive husband. Who's gonna allow you to be the longest running president of an NACP anywhere in the country? Her husband, Kiefer Jackson. Kiefer Jackson was born in Mississippi and he saw the horrible treatment of African American women. So he would never let his daughters ever be alone with a European American man. Just to give you a sense of where he's coming from. He knew what can happen. And he actually made his living, his money, going around theater, church to church, community center, community center, showing films, showing positive images of African Americans. Because the common thing at the time was buffoonery. So he actually was doing this. And he loved his daughters. And he wanted everything for his daughters. And in 1928, so a couple years before Ford's Theater, he sent his daughters off to a wonderful school. And they were going through their schooling. And all of a sudden, Maryland Art School would not let his daughter, Victoria, entrance. And that activated the family. The mother got involved in NACP. The father said, you can do as much of that as you want. I'll work. You do that. I'll take care of the clothes. I'll take care of the laundry. You do the NACP. And she became the most successful president in the country. Dr. King wrote of Dr. Jackson, I have watched with great pride with the great leadership you have given. Every American of goodwill is proud of the contribution that the Jackson family has rendered in the great quest for civil rights. But here's where it comes back to the children. Lily Jackson didn't get super active in NACP to become president in 1932 until she saw what her daughters did. So they had to leave Maryland. They went to education in Philadelphia. And when Juanita Jackson returned, she had done two things in Philadelphia. She successfully desegregated the dormitory. So when she was going there, she was in a segregated dormitory. So she successfully de desegregated it. Thurgood Marshall was also studying in Pennsylvania. He, while there, one day, I don't know if you've read any biographies of Thurgood Marshall, but he was a pretty wild young man. And even he, while in Pennsylvania, got activated. He didn't want to sit up in the balcony at the movie theater in, in Philadelphia. So he did a sit-in and the, and the theater caved that same day. He said, oh, you won't? He goes, no. Okay. And that was it. So Thurgood Marshall and Juanita had both had an experience in Pennsylvania and they came to Maryland and they started the citywide Young People's Forum. What was happening in 1931? What was the issue? If you were alive today as a student in 1931, what would be on top of your mind? Depression. No jobs. So Juanita, graduating from university, coming back to no jobs in her native Baltimore, she got active. And her parents didn't start this. The students started this. This is what I'm saying. This is your heritage as students in Maryland. Juanita goes, no employment jobs, no business. So she literally 
got together with high school students and college students at the uh, Bethel Church, Bethel AME Church in Baltimore, and they go, what are we going to do? Let's stop shopping. Look at all these businesses right here. They won't hire us. We're not going in. That's amazing. That was students doing this. And the mother saw that, and that's when she led you know, the NACP movement. And Thurgood Marshall was part of that. So when you're talking about who is the first African-American Supreme Court justice, he was part of the citywide Young People's Forum. And I mean, they did, they did just amazing things. Was that? 1931. Yeah, okay. in 1931. And they just did amazing, amazing things. Juanita became the first African-American lawyer. She actually got her degree from here at Maryland. She should be a name that's up here somewhere on your placards here. I don't know if they've ever mentioned Juanita Jackson in your school to you. I don't want to go through all the kinds of things she's done, but eventually she had become so successful at this that she made a fundraiser for $1,200, which kind of got the eye of the NACP in charge. Well, this woman can really do stuff. And she, in 1936, created the NACP Youth League called NACP Boosters. And then that's the year her mother took on the presidency of the Baltimore NACP. Juanita was this amazing woman. She helped the first ever African-American policewoman in Baltimore, who actually happened to be a woman, Violet Hill White, who was actually the pastor's daughter of Bethel Church. So we're going to look back at this Bethel Church. Because again, we come to, how did Juanita know to do this? How did he just become a superstar civil rights activist? What's the history? I just want to incidentally just quickly mention to you, just show you how amazing Juanita is and why you should study her more. So we've been familiar with some police violence recently in Baltimore. How would Juanita Jackson handle police violence? Between 1937 and 1942, nine African Americans were murdered in Baltimore by policemen. And the one that just threw her over the top was when Mr. Brodus, a proud World War II veteran, was hailing a cab. He was hailing a cab, World War II veteran. He got gunned down by a policeman for hailing an illegal cab that wasn't a licensed cab. They got so riled up that Juanita organized 150 different citizen organizations from Baltimore to Annapolis to demand change. If we knew that history, could you not have imagined that the next day, instead of rioting, we could have got up and we could have marched to Annapolis and not left until they made changes, all the changes we need in the police oversight? Juanita did that. This is a history we need to know. This is a tradition, what we call another tradition in America. Now let me just quickly mention. Did she get change? Yes, she got some change. The governor made a few concessions to uh, hire a few more teachers and provide a little bit of oversight and created a commission. What her mother, what uh, Lillian Jackson called a do-nothing commission. You know, we're going to look at it. Let's look into it. And that actually, that actually got her so excited, uh, Miss Jackson, that they activated the uh, whole African-American community to vote Republican in 1943 because of that. And they actually put in a different governor who was much more responsive to African-American needs. Just shows you, you know, how you don't mess with the Jackson family. I want to just talk about how Juanita's actions actually call back to another era. It never stopped. You see, the activism in our country for civil rights has never stopped. It didn't start in 60, like I just showed. It didn't start in 50, it didn't start in 40, it didn't start even in 30. I'm just going to very quickly, at just that Bethel Church, I just want to show you a couple things that have happened there. In 1885, they formed the regulators to fight for civil rights. 
another interesting one, 1870, they have something called indignation meetings. Indignation meetings is when you meet for prayer and fast all day in your church with having the best speakers around coming to speak to the audience because you're sitting there for 24 hours praying and fasting to change stuff. And they, they use that to get the first African-American public school teacher hired. Because in 1865, you see, after the Civil War, what they did is they fired all of our African-American teachers. It was a great job. And of course, it was great for African-American students to have an African-American teacher who loved them. We did the exact same thing in 1965 because we didn't know our history. In 1965, we got hoodwinked. The reason 1965 didn't show a big test score jump for African-Americans in our country, because they fired all our teachers. They go, sure, we'll integrate, but without a teacher who loves you and cares about you, who even wants you in their classroom. Would your test score go up if you got a teacher who hates you? They didn't go up. This is why. Because we didn't know our history. They did the exact same thing in 1865. They did the exact same thing to us in 1965. What else happened in this amazing place? Well, there's an amazing man you'll never forget from this moment forward. Mr. Hackett from Bethel AME. Did you know that there was a bill successfully passed by the Maryland legislature which was going to re-enslave all African-Americans and free African-Americans in 1860? It's called the Jacobs Bill. Has anyone ever heard of it? After seeing John Brown's raid, the people of Maryland got so freaked out because Maryland had 100,000 slaves, 100,000 people freed already. They go, look what just happened in West Virginia. I'm going to re-enslave all 100,000 or go to Africa by May. So Mr. Jacobs only gave him two months to leave and go to Africa. Yes, Adisu? You want to sing our song? Yeah. Which one? Okay. Do you mind if we interrupt? My daughter feels that we should have a little prayerful song. All right, Adisu. <laughs> With me? Noah, Abraham, Krishna, Moses, Zoroaster, Buddha, Jesus Christ and Muhammad, the Bab and Baha'u'llah, they are the waves of one sea, they are the birds of one tree, singing one song. They are the lamps of one light. Come and be their lovers, be lovers, be lovers of life. Good job, Adisa. That's a suitable introduction for Mr. Hackett. Mr. Hackett led three years of indignation meetings and everything else he could think of to stop that law's passage. It went to public vote. And if you can believe it, of course, African-Americans couldn't vote. The enslavers voted it down. So Mr. Hackett was an amazing man. He was a leader on the Underground Railroad. Unlike Harry Tubman, he would go with a cart right into Eastern Shore, Maryland with a gun. I'm taking these six. <laughs> That's Mr. Hackett. He didn't just do like Harry did. He recruited for the United States Colored Troop. Two regiments came out of Baltimore who fought for their own freedom. So Mr. Hackett's an amazing man. This is the kind of legacy that came out of Bethel AME Church, where Juanita Jackson came from. You know, so these are the stories they're telling. This is the history you know. Just one more statement about Bethel AME Church. 
the first ever African-American penned abolitionist paper. Who wrote it? When was it written? Guess the year. Try and guess the year of the first abolitionist African-American wrote anti-slavery track. Guess. 1840. 1840s. 1990s. 1990s, maybe. <laughs> 1810. 1810. Mr. Coker, thanks to Mr. Hackett's father, Charles, he was hidden in the church and it could escape from slavery. And he wrote this track. His proposal was, on this date, everyone who's born is free, and then give everyone else five years to transition. That was his basic idea that he put forward. He said everyone should be a, a champion of humanity, was actually a statement he used. He actually then went over and helped found Sierra Leone. So he's one of the gentlemen who founded Sierra Leone, Mr. Cocker. He was the first reverend and founder of the Bethel Amy Church that led to Juanita. Here on campus, so we've talked a little bit about how Juanita got done. Here on Maryland campus, how did we integrate here? So before we integrated here, let's step back just to University of Maryland as a whole. Thurgood Marshall, does anyone know what really pissed him off in his childhood or in his youth? I mean, so many things probably did. But, but uh, Helen Hicks was actually his neighbor, so she told me some stories about him. Like, he lived on a street where Europeans, Americans live on that street, we live on this side, because in 1912, Baltimore was the pioneer in these crazy covenants. You sign your law, I promise never to sell to an African-American. So this whole street was European-American. So Thurgood Marshall was growing up there. Just up the street was the Baltimore Law School, University of Maryland Law School. I want to go right there. I can save on room costs, food costs, transportation costs. I'm going to that school right there. He was not allowed to. And that's why he was off in Pennsylvania in that movie theater being desegregating it. But when he came here and Donald Murray was supported by his fraternity, anyone guess the fraternity's name? First African-American fraternity? Alpha Phi Alpha. So Alpha Phi Alpha goes, we're going to support you. Go to that school. Let's write a lawsuit. But Thurgood Marshall at this point was at Howard because Howard had the next law school he had to go to. And he heard about this, and he goes, wait a second. I have a chance to be in on desegregating my school that I wanted to go to? I'm in. Thurgood Marshall insisted he be represented on that case. And he said to them very simply, why is this a state school, and he has to leave the state to go to the education, when law is specific to your state? No argument. And we should all know Carol Bond. Carol Bond was the one who cooperated with Thurgood Marshall. He said, I recognize it. The state has undertaken the function of education in the law, but has omitted students of one race from the only adequate provision made for it, and omitted them solely because of their color. So by that, he himself went to UMD Law School. So 39 years after he graduated, he overturned it. And in 1935, we now have our first African-American student in University of Maryland. The next attempt they made was in 1950, because they weren't very happy. 15 years later, you haven't made that much progress. In the words of Juanita Mitchell, who was now one of the senior lawyers at NACP, she goes, we're gonna sue segregation out of America. And right, they already had this case. They showed, you know, if you're saying separate but equal, but you're not providing it. So they took three cases on simultaneously in 1950 for the undergrads, Hiram Whittle. He was chosen because he was just an excellent student. And while he was waiting for this whole court case to go, they had him at Morgan State. So he was a year and a half at Morgan State, and then he came here to finish his school. And the other people are quite interesting. Perrin Mitchell, who you now have a Mitchell building. It's the sociology building on campus. 
So Perrin Mitchell, he got activated. Like, what was his activation moment? It occurred in 1932 when he joined the Young People's Citywide Forum of Baltimore. Two of the things that really got them really charged up was the lynching of 32 and the lynching of 33. The lynching of 33 was of George Armwood. So poor George Armwood was lynched in Princess Anne. Perrin Mitchell and his brother Clarence Mitchell went to Princess Anne because the Afro-American wanted to cover it. Perrin and Clarence were there. They saw everything. They recorded everything. There's even a recording on the internet of Perrin Mitchell talking about that lynching, and the reporter doesn't even believe them. No, they didn't advertise this stuff. Yes, they did. That's how we knew to send our reporters there. The point is, is that he got activated from that. So Perrin Mitchell then went and still fought in World War II, won a Purple Heart in Italy. I mean, this guy is unbelievable. And he comes back and he agrees to be the test case for graduate school. So he became a sociology professor here at the campus. And of course, he became the first US senator in the South since 1898, when he got elected in 1970. And he did eight terms. The Mitchells married the Jacksons, by the way, to kind of bring these two power families together. Besides Perrin, we also have the first woman. Her name is Esther McCready. And she has a beautiful statement that kind of brings your mind there. And she wrote, on her first day, only two people approached her. One person who was an instructor says, if you don't pray to God, you won't get out of here because nobody is here for you. And McCready quickly replied, as quick as a button, if God intends me to me to get out of here, nobody can stop me. The Supreme Court of Baltimore kind of shot back saying, unlike the law school, nursing is nursing. Isn't nursing, because actually what Marilyn was doing to get out of employing her here was saying, we'll send her to Tennessee, Tennessee African-American nursing school. That's fine. It's even better than this one. They actually said on record, it's, it's kind of better than this one. And then they said back to him and go, well, actually, you got to have networks of people you know. And, and so they were learning the arguments that they used for Brown versus Board of Education. They were trying them all out. So this was an amazing thing happening here. I want to now look at this. What is the dynamic? What's common to this history? What makes this work? How is the Congress of Racial Equality, the Interracial Fellowship, how is it all working right here? I want you to explore, to think Juanita Jackson's way, to think George Hackett's way. Think about them in terms of the 10 hate crimes on campus this past year. Did you say there were 10 hate crimes on this campus? In the past year. In the past year? Two nooses, eight, eight post-hate posters have gone up. You guys know that? I just want to relate to you how to think about it, how to think about it using the other tradition. So suspend a little bit your traditional ways. Like, for instance, the pre president of the campus said, of course, it's deplorable. And of course it's deplorable. But Juanita Jackson didn't just say things were deplorable. George Hackett didn't just say things were deplorable. The first chancellor of African descent in this campus was 1982, John Slaughter. And John Slaughter gives a nice vision statement to kind of hold. To become the model of a multiracial, multicultural, and multigeneration academic campus. Beautiful. We can put that out there. That's a very other tradition-y kind of statement. And it comes from this campus as chancellor. So I can just point to that. And I want to describe where we are so we understand exactly why it was so hard to integrate this campus. On the left side of our campus is the Goodwood concentration camp. On the other side of the campus was the Rivers, Riversdale concentration camp. So you're situated on land that was ceded from two concentration camps that continued to operate while this university was in operation. Who were in those camps? African Americans. They had two concentration camps. And those concentration camps were owned by who? The founder of this university, Mr. Calvert. So please never wear the UMD colors. You know that yellow-black thing? That's the Calvert concentration camp flag. 
And you know that other flag? That's another enslaving family. So those are the flags of the families. Yeah, they're crests. So you should never wear the University of Maryland Maryland flag on anything because they're just two slave families, crests. So you got Goodwood here and Riversdale here. You're sitting in between two concentration camps. So this place here says, yeah, we're going to use state money to have a campus for this agricultural school, but it's going to be to educate us to run concentration camps. So what year is this we're talking about? 1856. Slavery was still here in Maryland. Slavery ended in Maryland. 1864, and the people in Maryland voted not to end it. But you know who did? You know who threw it over? By only 1,000 votes. The final vote was over by 1,000 in the plus column. So 50.1%. It was the European-American soldiers who fought alongside African-American soldiers of the 30th and 31st USCT Regiment of Baltimore. If I fought with these guys and I bled and lived with them, I know they're human. I know they're as human as I They bled like I did. And they saved my life 10 times when I was on that battlefield. That guy is allowed to vote and allowed to be a citizen. So these are the guys who swayed it. Those guys voted 98% to end slavery in Maryland. And that moved us up just to 1,000 over. So you know that the, the rest of Maryland was whatever, 40%, 30%. My suspicion of who's doing these incidents is Kappa Alpha. Kappa Alpha is a fraternity of the Confederacy. They begrudgingly told the world in 2010, we're going to stop wearing Confederate outfits. One of the fraternities here on campus. It was founded by Sons of the Confederacy in Lexington, Virginia. And here on campus, every year in 1930, they ran a minstrel show. And you might not know what a minstrel show is, so let me tell you what Frederick Douglass tells you about a minstrel show. The filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied them by nature, they were in blackface, in which to pander to corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens. Because, of course, they were doing this to mock us. And this was done by that fraternity on this campus every year. And I would argue to you, you have here a Freedom House in 1971. It was founded in 1971. And the purpose of that Freedom House was to advance integration, if you read the founding documents. You have this wonderful place. Why don't we turn to that fraternity and demand from them to put on a cross-cultural show. You say you've given up this life? Well, I need you not just to do a cold piece. You no longer post your blackface on Twitter like you used to. Two times in the past 10 years, they've put their parties of blackface on Twitter. You no longer dress up in your costumes when we can see you. But I need you to actually do something positive, what we call a hot piece. Right? It's not just the absence of violence. I need you to actually love me. And if you guys were so into your minstrel show in 1930, I expect you to be 10 times more into a cultural show to show all the wonderful cultures on UMD campus. So why doesn't the Baha'i Club go to them and go, let's partner and let's put on the opposite of the minstrel show of the 30s. Remember that thing you guys used to put on 80 years ago? Let's do the opposite. What would the opposite look like? Let's have, because what are they going to say? Nothing but yes. What else could they say? We're giving them an out. And we have this wonderful place called the Freedom House that you open. And it has, a, it has a name called Nyumburu Cultural Center. Oh. Nyumburu means Freedom House. And I'll throw out one final item, and that's on action. I think not only can you call on the Unity Center to do this, or this you know, rich fraternity to do this, you yourselves could take the example of the Interracial Brotherhood of Baltimore. 
Did you know E.B. Dubois lived in Baltimore 20 years? Not a single paper in Baltimore interviewed him those whole 20 years. This will show you how far the other tradition is off the map. But the Brotherhood of Unity approached him and said, we have this idea called Units for Unity. What a cool name. Units for Unity, right? A very college term. You know, you get units, you got your college units. And you already have here a core diversity requirement. Every undergrad in University of Maryland has to take a core diversity requirement. In 1994, that was introduced. Why doesn't the Baha'i Club go, we're going to join that, but us students, like Juanita Jackson, who's a UMD grad, we're going to copy her, the students are going to put one of those core diversity requirements. And it's called Units for Unity. And we're going to be just as, meet all the academic standards that they do, but you're going to teach them how to actually live the other tradition. For instance, think about there's a Confederate statue in Easton you could take down. George Hackett's grave I just told you about, I just went to visit it. It's covered in overgrowth. In 1949, European Americans tried to bulldoze his gravestone, and NACP held it back in downtown Baltimore where his grave was, and then they moved it to Johnsville, Maryland. Johnsville, Maryland took me half an hour to drive to north of Columbia, Maryland, and I get there, and I'm in the middle of these million-dollar homes, and there's this little African-American cemetery that nobody visited, totally overgrown. That could be the kind of project you do. Because you see how great George Hackett is. He saved us from getting re-enslaved in 1859. Maybe we can go up to his grave and take care of it. And by taking care of it and making it fantastic, we guarantee that these million-dollar homes never just one day bump it over. We take care of our history. And therefore, everyone will know George Hackett's story. Because we fixed it up nice enough so school children can take bus trips there to Laurel Cemetery. So that's why you could run a course that feeds that energy. Because to save Reed's Drugstore, to save Lillian Jackson takes constant energy. To tell the story of the other tradition takes energy. But you have this wonderful thing called core diversity requirement. I kind of put those ideas out there to show the other tradition asks you to think like George Hackett, think like Juanita Jackson, and recognize you can use all these intersectionalities because you can have a more mature viewpoint saying that everyone's with me. Um, so I hope that uh, Barbara challenged me the other day you know, to come and think, did the students of Maryland participate in this other tradition? And after studying this for a month, I say, absolutely, they did. And I think they're probably at the forefront of the whole country. In fact, some people might even say that Baltimore was way ahead of every other part of the country in the civil rights movement, given when you see what Juanita Jackson did, you see what Perrin Mitchell did, you see what Clarence, Clarence Mitchell helped pass the civil rights law of 63, 64, 65, and 67. He was the, they call him the 101st senator because he was um, Johnson's right-hand man because he knew what had to happen. So he was the one who was stirring up all the votes. That's the kind of history I want to share with you. And I hope you guys think about taking on these 10 acts of violence to twist them around to let you transform the whole campus in a way that no one imagined. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this Other Tradition podcast. It is brought to you by DC Time Travel Tours, where you experience history.